Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. I'll be reading the Bible for you guys today from Acts 5, 17 until the end of the chapter. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadduceans, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the, to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officials came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council called Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honour by all the people, stood up and gave order to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present came case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, and we, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Thanks, Helen. Evening, evening, afternoon. It's afternoon, right? This is afternoon. Afternoon, afternoon. Welcome to City Light North Adelaide. My name is Andrew Tran. If you were wondering, like, man, Andrew, you look a little bit brown today. Like, what's, what, what's up with that? Well, I just came back from the Acts 39 conference on the Gold Coast. Lucky me, right? Um, the Gold Coast was, was meant to be cyclonic weather, but God just blessed us with 
really nice weather, actually. It wasn't too bad. Until it, it actually rained a little bit before we left, but maybe that was God just holding things back. I don't know. I don't know. Um, if you did go to the x Men conference, uh, I think uh, from here it was Jesse, myself, um, Carl, Ruth Harold, a few others as well. Um, I just want to encourage, uh, there, is an, there is another conference next year, and it's in Sydney. Um, and I'll, uh, the reason why I'm just plugging this right now, uh, it's because it's firstly in the forefront of my mind, but it was so, I found it super encouraging, super life-giving, heart-filling, soul-refreshing time. And um, this year's theme was uh, Gospel Beauty, Gospel Power. And actually, it really ties in with what we're talking about tonight, uh, the power and the, the beauty of the gospel and its power. And um, as I said, it was a really reinvigorating, revitalizing time for me. And I would encourage you to go next year because next year it's, uh, the, the theme is spirit-empowered leadership. And, and even though it's aimed at mostly leaders, I would encourage you to go because um, you, you'll be strongly encouraged by the word, the worship, and the fellowship. Enough about Acts 29 in the conference. Um, if you've, um, as you may or may not know, uh, we are currently in, the seri- in our series called Unstoppable, our series in Acts. And the tagline is, how God uses the church to change the world. And if it's, it's your first time here today, if you've never read Acts before, I encourage you to, at, at the very least, read the account that, that Luke, like Luke, hit up, uh, like, like Luke wrote. Um, you can hit up our podcast for previous sermons, but at least, very least, read it for yourself, because up to this point in time... Um, uh, a lot of crazy things have happened, and even more crazier things are going to happen. Two weeks ago, Simon Jackson preached on uh, the passage early in Luke 5, talking about Ananias and Sapphira, and guided us, he guided us through what it means to live a life of integrity under grace. Uh, last week, uh, we had the pleasure of hearing from Tyler Shedd. Uh, he walked us through uh, this, uh, the, the next part in Acts 5, which talked about the signs and wonders that were being performed by the apostles. Um, and he expanded on, while that we believe in a God that can still heal today, we are reminded that healing and signs and wonders is not what is actually ultimate, but what they point to is ultimate. And that's the one, Jesus Christ. And this week, as we've heard from Helen this, um, this afternoon, um, we hear about the persecution of Peter and the apostles. And Man, we have, a, we have a great text there. I'm, I'm super pumped for this text. Not because they get persecuted, you know, persecution isn't fun. It's not what I meant. But there is so much Luke is conveying about God here in this particular passage in Acts. There's, there's heaps of, to unpack today. Um, but the problem is that when we hear the word persecution, we don't like it because the word persecution conveys hardship and trials. And that kind of freaks us out a little bit, right? Um, it doesn't really bode well for our comfort levels. But my hope and prayer tonight is that in this story that we see in Acts, that you be encouraged by what is God, doing, God is doing here in the text and doing in your lives right now. Let's pray and see what God has for us, eh? Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is uh, living and breathing and it, has, and it gives life, Lord Father. Uh, help us to see your glorious self. Help us to see your beauty, your majesty, your splendor. Open our eyes and let us hear with our ears. Soften our hearts, O oh Spirit. We need you to move as always. Pour, out, pour yourself out onto us tonight that we just don't be hearers of the word but effectual doers. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I said before, if you've been with us through our Unstoppable series, um, especially at the end of last, 
You, you might have read some of it beforehand. You might have been with us through last year. Um, but this part of Acts might seem a little bit familiar to you. And you'd be right. It does sound a little bit familiar because previously in chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John had healed a layman. And following that healing, the Sadducees arrested them and questioned them and told them not to talk about Jesus. And this is after Peter and John had been reminded that by the religious, religious, and this is after Peter and John reminded the religious elite that they were guilty for killing Jesus and telling them that salvation was through grace alone through Jesus rather than through works. And then as Tyler mentioned last week, you hear you have Peter and the apostles healing again. Not just healing one person, but all manner of people. In 5.16, it says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were what? They were all healed. All of them were healed. And the thing about those healings, that those, these signs and wonders, it pointed the people to the saving work in Jesus. The text even says, More than ever, believers would added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, which leads us to our reading today. Although they were arrested earlier in Acts, there weren't too many repercussions for them. There weren't too many repercussions for Peter and John. And I say this because I think here is when you really start to see the real persecution happen. So with this passage, straight after the signs and wonders that were done by the apostles, we can see that the high priest is clearly agitated. If you have your Bibles open, it says he was jealous. Imagine this, if you were a high priest or a religious or political leader you were, and you were losing your grip on your people and you've based your entire life following these teachings and, the, and teaching people your ideologies and you've made yourself out to, be look, to look super pious and super religious and then out of, all, out of nowhere this Jesus Christ fella comes, at a, comes and he dies and he rises again supposedly and then you have a bunch of his followers going around doing miracles and then these people start to leave your leadership and they follow and put their faith and hope in something that isn't you. This is what makes the high, this is what makes the high priest and the Sadducees so jealous. They lose the plot. Instead of the people following the high priests, they put their hope in Jesus. Their jealousy drove them to put the apostles in prison. And not just any prison, by the way, but a prison that, a prison that was public. Not just some prison tucked away in a remote island or from away from society, but a public one for all to see. To show that if you accept this Jesus person as your Lord of your life, or if you, let alone if you heal or preach in the name of Jesus, this is what's going to happen to you. And then what happens? Verse 19 to 20 says this, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. It looks like Luke, the author of, this, of Acts, is simply telling us that an angel just breaks him out of prison. And for us, we might be thinking, yeah, okay, mate. That's, we read this in our heads and we kind of skip over this detail a little bit. At least, at least I did. And Luke, and when you think about it, Luke only spends half a sentence here. He says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and, and that, that's it. It seems a little understated, don't you think? And I think if we do this, if we were to do a casual reading of this entire text, 
we might be inclined to think that this is simply or merely a story of a prison break. But if you're like me, I think that our entertainment culture has desensitized us to the gravity of what is actually happening right here. Because despite the simplicity here on the surface, don't, on the surface, don't let it get twisted. Breaking out of prison is not easy. Especially if you don't have tools or plans, you're kind of helpless, right? Like, did you ever see that? Did anyone see the show Prison Break? Prison Break, it was like from the late 2000s. There's a guy named, uh, an actor called Wentworth Miller. He played the character of Michael Schofield, who goes into prison to break out his brother because they were, he was going to get executed. And so what he does is that he, he has this super elaborate plan and puts all these tattoos around him, which covertly is his plan to get out of prison. And he spends 22, 42-minute episodes of the first season, which is ludicrous, right? 22 episodes of a, of a season to get him out. And we are amazed because of how precise and ingenious that is. But don't ever dismiss what God is doing here. God doesn't need tattoos over Peter's body to get him out. Peter, doesn't, Peter and his disciples don't do a Houdini, and they don't need smoke and mirrors. They don't, Peter has no need to do a Shawshank Redemption and crawl out of a sewer pipe. God is bigger, God is stronger, God is mightier than any prison cell. And the apostles, all they did was sit there. And God sent an angel and opened the doors and they just walked out. Boom, you're done. God won a prison cell zero. God doesn't send in the Jewish special forces to break him out. He sent an angel so that he and he alone gets the glory. God doesn't need no man to get the job done. He does the work. He gets the glory. And clearly here, God is all-powerful, almighty, and all-sovereign, and he does whatever he pleases. And you might be wondering, dude, two verses in, why are you making such a big deal of this? And I'd argue that you can never, ever, ever underestimate and understate the magnitude of God's sovereignty. It underpins the entirety of our text today. God's sovereignty is the text today. And I love the next seven verses just as much as the previous few. Literally, it plays out like the Jewish version of Hogan's Heroes, right? Let's read it through. 20 to 26. The angel said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came, and those who, now, the, now, when the high priest came and, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, then, then we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering, what would this come to? And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, not, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. It's almost comical. <laughs> it's almost comical. Think of the high priest and the Sanhedrin standing up there, looking out the window, waiting for the apostles to, to be brought in. And then an officer runs in. He's, 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 he's breathless, he's not able to speak, and he says, they're gone. 
And you can imagine the murmurs just, just starting among the, religious, among the religious elite. Oh boy, this is, this, is, this is bad. This is bad. And then some random person comes up and tells them, these Jews you locked up, they're back at it again in the temple. If I was the high priest, I'd be, I'd be sipping my coffee again. What the heck is going on? God shows up these t- uptight, self-righteous, religious teachers by these unlearned Jewish commoners. What we see on display here is the complete volitional nature of our God. The God we serve is the sovereign king of the universe. He is able to do whatever he pleases and has power over all and anything. And no matter what the religious leaders or authorities threw at the apostles, God was always in control. They could not stop God. They couldn't stop his plans. No one could. No man, no woman, no political authority, no religious leader, no king, no ruler, no judge, not even Clive Palmer, no power under heaven or earth can stop God. Nothing can get in the way of our unstoppable God. And and God so much is in control that he has the ability to humiliate all those who arrogantly try. Now, when you think about God's sovereignty, if God is all-powerful and he does whatever he pleases, and if God sent an angel instead of a man to break his apostles out of prison, then why the heck does God not use someone like an angel to share his good news to humanity, right? Like, that would make more sense. It would, wouldn't it make more sense? Why would you use humans that are selfish, backstabbing, unreliable fools? I'm not dogging you all, but... We're all fools. Like, honestly, in the case of Peter, who in the right mind will call this guy unreliable? I mean, he denied, he denied that he would deny Jesus to his face, and then several days later, denied Jesus three times. If that was a job, if you failed three times at something you said you weren't going to do, you'd just get fired. In our minds, it is easy to think, who needs a man when you have angels, right? And you see see this in the Gospels with the announcement of Jesus to the shepherds by angels. And how do they respond? What the heck is this? They're so scared. This is so bright. What, you have a Messiah? Let's go. That sounds great. Let's do it. This is the kind of response we want, right? Why not send an angel? And in the breaking out of the apostles, we clearly see that God does not need a man to achieve his purposes. It's super clear that God does not need man for his work. But what does God instruct the apostles to do? In verse 20, it says to go and speak. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Not because God is unable to do it himself. He clearly can. But because he is sovereign, he's able to use the lowest of the low to shame the wisest of the wise. And by doing so, he brings all glory to himself. And knowledge of, our, of God's sovereignty should fill us with so much hope. God has power and dominion over every square inch of the, in space in the universe, every single block of DNA that you have to every supermassive black hole that exists out there. And he has power over every single circumstance that every human being has ever lived, is living, and will live, ever. P. 
period. God is in control. Now, I want to pause here for a second in the narrative because when we hear that God changed, God changed the apostles' circumstances and broke them out of jail, we think that God is going to change our circumstances and get us out of our crummy situations, right? Is it just me? No? And sadly, this is, we, we, hear this, we hear this kind of message preached this way, that God is essentially going to break free of you of all your problems and essentially act as a fancy genie to get you out of your sticky situation. But I don't think we need to look outside at just general evangelical, evangelical, evangelicalism. To, we just need to look at ourselves. We might not say it that way, but we sure approach God that way sometimes, right? How often do we just approach God, not for himself, but for his stuff, for what he can do for us? Like, I'm not saying that you can't ask God for things or to change your circumstances that are rough. It is a problem, though, that if the majority of our relationship looks like this, that's not a loving relationship, that's a transactional relationship. We laugh at songs like God's Plan by Drake, where Drake claims that God's plan for him is to overcome his foes and his enemies and his haters, and God planned for him to be successful and famous. But we just do the same, Right? We might not ask for success in the rap industry, but when our only, and I really mean only, interaction with God is when we ask him for that job promotion or help with our studies or that real, really menial life circumstance. God is not your butler. He is the Lord of the universe. But because God does have everything in control, it is great news for his children, who, his children because we serve a king who for his own glory's sake is for us and not against us. And in his sovereignty, he's able to work all things for, together for the good of those who love him. But most importantly, God uses his sovereignty to achieve his purposes, not our selfish purposes, but his glorious purposes, his glorious purposes that he has brought us into. We need to trust God's sovereignty in the fulfilling of his mission and the building of his kingdom. And we can have full confidence that what he, what he said he'll do, he will do. But that doesn't mean that trust in God's sovereign nature doesn't mean that we'll never fail at the stuff that he's put in front of us to do. Because truth be told, you will fail. It's just, it's just life, right? But even if we do fail, no, sorry, even when we do fail, not if, but when, because of God's sovereignty, he won't. He can't. If God could fail at what he set up to do, then he wouldn't be God. But when we have full confidence in God's sovereign reign over all things, it fills us with so much confidence in all we do because everything that we do for him is not in vain. Nothing we do for God is in vain. And you see, God's, you see the confidence in God's sovereignty in Peter and the apostles' response to the religious leaders in the next little part of our passage. In 27 to 32, it says this. And when they, brought, and they, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, 
And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What's happening here is that the religious council had told them before, you quit, quit playing, guys. I, I told you to, we told you to stop teaching about this Jesus guy. And don't tell us that we're guilty of killing this guy, which is totally, total baloney, because if you remember in the Gospels, it was the religious elite that wanted Jesus Christ gone. And how did the apostles respond? We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. They didn't only witness the power that Jesus had when he defeated death and rose up from the grave, but less than 24 hours ago, they saw God's power in breaking them free. They had to obey. Their experience of his sovereignty of being carried out compelled them to obey God. They had so much confidence in God that they went for the jugular again, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. It's funny in our day because evangelical loves just loves to we just love to love on people, right? But we don't want to talk about sin. But here you have possibly the least seeker-sensitive approach ever. Why? Because they knew that telling people the hard truth was necessary for people to see why the gospel was such good news. And they confidently proclaimed the truth because they knew God could not fail. And then common sense would have just left it there. But you see the apostles just stir up the hornet's nest again with verse 31. God exalted him, this man you tried to kill, at his right hand, um, at his right hand and is as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Don't you think that when the apostles responded like this, they would have considered this could potentially go bad? This could go really bad. I mean, we've been, they were put in jail before and they could be rounded up again. Surely the disciples knew this. But their blessed assurance in Christ emboldened them to preach the gospel to their persecutors, regardless of what might have been coming their way afterwards. It makes me think about how good we actually have it here. Should we not be as bold, if not more bold? Yet we're not. And why is, it, why is that? And you'd have to answer that for yourself, but I can, I can only answer for myself. I know that in the, in the past, if you've heard me preach before, I've, I work as a physio, and I've, been, I've mentioned about talking about faith with, with uh, clients and colleagues before at work. But I don't want to give you the illusion that Andrew Tran has it all together and, and he shares the gospel with everyone. I'm not going to lie, it's, it is hard to share faith, in particular certain industries, health, in, health especially. A lot of us have professional boundaries, right? My code of conduct actually doesn't allow me to proselytize. And although sometimes I can get around that with some really inquisitive kind of questioning, leading them onto what I want to talk about, which is Jesus, um, sometimes, if I'm perfectly honest, sometimes I just use that professional boundary as an excuse. 
Like, I want to be thought well by my clients, right? I want to be thought well by my colleagues. I don't want, I don't want my patient list to get smaller but by telling them I'm a Christian. Let alone tell people that Jesus is the way to life. And, like... Confession time for me. That there's, there's the more argue, argue, argumentative, aggressive side of my brain says that, dude, if I if I hear something like an argument or a, or a worldview that I, that I disagree with, usually my, my debating brains are like, no, I will wreck this fool. I I, should, I could totally do that. But if you even mention that you're Christian, people are automatically res- resistant to you, right? You don't, even have to, you don't have to say anything about Jesus and you feel that there's this resistance to you. I get that. And that resistance is not even necessarily a withdrawal from you, but um, that, it might feel like a hostile tension. And that's especially true in the culture that we live in. And the reality is, and the reality is, I'm fairly sure that Christians haven't been burnt at the stake, at least in Australia, at least, or beaten to death lately. Like, in the West, we do suffer, don't get me wrong, these, we do suffer, but I would argue that the sacrifices that, that we often make or don't make uh, have, nowhere, have nowhere near as much consequences. some of our brothers and sisters around the globe, let alone those of the disciples that we're reading about today. So why are we, why are we so afraid? If we, live, if we lived in the Roman world, how do you think we would have handled the persecution? I know, I, don't, I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you how I would have done that. Again, the arrogant part of my brain says, yeah, I'd live for Jesus. I'm, I'm Andrew freaking Tran. You Romans got nothing. Come on, bring it on, bro. Like, that's, but re, in reality, I don't know how I'd handle going to jail when I sometimes even can't handle the idea of people thinking poorly of me. And I think this is the case for some of us um, because despite how much we know about God's bigness, we forget about it. We don't live, we live out of step with knowing how God, how big God is. That God has got it. That history is ultimately his story. We forget that. And yet in times of trial, in times of persecution, God doesn't actually leave his people empty-handed. We'll continue in reading in verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The disciples were not only emboldened by seeing of God's omnipotence earlier on, but they were endowed with the Holy Spirit, which empowers them to be faithful and bold. They endowed with the, the spirit that testifies to our spirit to convict us and encourage us in our faith. And this is huge because God doesn't just leave us to our own devices, to our own intellect to have conviction around who he is. Because in his infinite wisdom, in his sovereignty, he chose to send his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. So when you are under the pump and you feel that anxiety rise up in you, when you start talking about faith, take heart because God actually lives in you, always, and will never forsake you, through his spirit. Our God is not just mighty and powerful, but he's also near to us. 
That's just not comforting. That's emboldening. A little bit of a caveat. Um, a lot of Christians sadly mistaken and conflate that emboldening by, emboldening by the Spirit is the same thing as God making the opposition easier to face. And the truth is, it, it isn't. And don't worry, I've been guilty of believing this too. If we look at verse 33, what does it say? When they heard this, when the religious elite heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. This verse doesn't even need explaining. <laughs> doesn't sound very encouraging, right? But I want you to think about the next few verses that Luke has recorded us for us here. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher, that had, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you, do, what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thidius, uh, Thidius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away, drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking of, is of man. For if this plan is of, or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will be not able to overthrow them. You might be even found opposing to God. Luke records this Pharisee's response here for one and one reason only, I think. So that the reader, Theophilus, the person who this book was addressed to, might look back at how far Christianity had come. I think Luke wanted him to look at all these faiths and cults that died off, and then the fact that Theophilus was reading this, how far has Christianity come? And how... And that's just for Theophilus. Think about us when we read this. 2,000 years later, on the opposite side of the world, at the ends of the earth, upside down. No? No? Hemisphere joke? No? Okay. <laughs> Does this not speak to the remarkable power of the gospel? Even after 2,000 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ crossed the world and is still going today. And in this passage, we really only see a glimpse of persecution, really. We don't really see the last 2,000 years that, where the, the Roman Empire tried to destroy Christianity, and it's just in ruins now. Compared to the worldwide advance of God's kingdom all over the world, God will build his kingdom, and he cannot be stopped. If we keep reading for a second, we think that the apostles are going to get away with it for being faithful to God. You see, you see reading at the end of verse 39, so they, the religious council, took his, the Gamaliel's advice, um, so, they, so they took his advice, right? And we read these words, and for a, glimmer of, for a glimmer, just a little bit of a second, we think to ourselves, sick, if I stand up, to my, if I stand up for my faith, God is gonna protect me, and nothing bad is gonna happen, but then what? So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
I don't know how you read this, but part of me was very much thinking, come on, God, these guys stood up for you. Give them a break. Come on. And we think like, we think this as well. When we stand up for God, we stand up for our faith. We think, we should be given a break as well, right? I'm doing you a favor, God. Come on. But in the reality, firstly, God does not need standing up for. God does not need us weaklings to defend him. God is probably thinking, it's a bit cute that you guys are defending, uh, that we are defending him, but the, the, the powerful, righteous king of the universe does not need defending. And secondly, more importantly, why should God spare us from suffering if he did not even spare his own son from suffering? Why should God spare us from suffering if he didn't even spare his own son? It's interesting we, when we read the reactions of the disciples in verses 41 and 42, it says this, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from, the house, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ did. That Christ is Jesus. This not might make sense to our sensibilities. That our sensibilities are used to comfort. Because instead of holiness. But God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be more like Christ. We can't help but think of verses like in the gospel, such as John 15, 20 to 21. It says this. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Just because God is sovereign and has control over all things does not mean that you will live a life without suffering. In fact, Scripture is quite clear in Romans 8, 16 to 17. It says this, The Spirit bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Read that last bit again. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Simply put, we're his kids. And because of that, we will share in Christ's suffering in order to be able to share in his inheritance. In fact, Suffering for the gospel changes us. It humiliates us and humbles us. Why? To make us more like Jesus. This is why suffering is actually good for us. This is why the disciples were overjoyed in their suffering. Not because they were masochists, but because God was using their persecution, their suffering, to change and mold them more into more into the image of Christ. God is so sovereign that he can use pain to change us and help us call it joy. The apostles rejoiced at that God had considered them worthy to suffer for Christ's name, to become more like him. And the text here says beating. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like an old fisticuff situation. It's, it's more likely the 40 lashes without one, which is people who are known to die from that. And the disciples consider this kind of suffering, even death, a light and momentary affliction, and even joyous because it was preparing them for the eternal way of glory, which is beyond all comparison. 
You cannot simply do anything to, 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 to hamper the disciples' joy in Christ and their zeal for the gospel because even if they knew they died, God couldn't fail. And I know what you're thinking. Tran, I don't want to be persecuted. <laughs> I don't want to suffer. Well, if it was pain, I don't feel joy. I totally understand that. I put people in pain every day for a living. <laughs> suffering, by definition, is not pleasurable. But suffering reveals where we find our joy. Is it our circumstance or is it something greater than that? Suffering and persecution and oppression, as much as these things suck, we, we have a high priest who's able to empathize with us. We have Christ who suffered not just any old death, but death on a cross, separation from the Father, to, and experienced the full fury of God's wrath. Jesus knows what suffering is, and he's promised us to be, within us, to be, with, us, to be with us in all of it. Jesus is actually interceding on behalf of us as well. It's nuts when you think about it. Jesus is praying to the Father for us in our suffering. The only way we can experience joy in suffering is if we get our eyes off ourselves and look onto something far greater. When we fix our gaze on Christ and who he is, we are captured by his beauty and his majesty. So much so that it compels us to endure suffering and persecution for the sake of his glory and the salvation of others so that they may too know the beauty of Christ. And God knows that we're frail, but in our jars of clay, we have this treasure of the gospel. And when we're captivated by Christ and his message of life to the full, that's only then when we will be able to willingly and joyfully accept persecution, pain, suffering, shame, mockery, and dishonor for the name of our beautiful Savior. And that's the challenge for us tonight. Not so much how willing are we, enter, uh, how willing are we to enter persecution and suffering, because resistance, persecution, and suffering will come, especially in our cultural climate. I can guarantee you that. But we sh- what we should ask ourselves is, how joyful are we when we suffer for Christ? How joyful are we when we suffer for Christ? Something to think at home. When it comes to God's sovereignty in suffering for the gospel, instead of asking, change these circumstances, O Lord, how much are we acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things and ask, how can you be most glorified, O Lord? When it comes to obeying God against opposition, No matter how great the opposition is, are we recognizing that our God is greater? Instead of asking God for our opposition to be easy, how much are we asking God to not just merely help us in our obedience, but to do it with zeal and to share the good news because God cannot fail? And I recognize this is a really, really hard word tonight for some of us because it requires us to die to ourselves, to die to our comfort, to die to our preferences, to die to our privileges, to die to our hopes and dreams, to die to our money and our time and our resources. The calling of Christianity is high. But God gave us his son to live a life we could not live, 
to die a death that we were meant to die. And as a propitiation for our sins, he was ra- we have been raised up in him and given unmerited favor and are co-heirs with him. And we have Christ as our eternal joy and treasure. God in his sovereignty achieved that. And God will continue in his sovereignty to complete his mission. To bring glory to himself through the building of his, through the building of his kingdom. And we can have absolute confidence that everything we do, everything we do for God will never be in vain. Even if we fail. Because God can use anything for his glory because he is in control. God has blessed us so immeasurably well. When we're absolutely enamored by Christ, how could we not be obedient and joyful in suffering for the name of Christ and the gospel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for who you are. Thank you for the gift of Christ that you gave him for us. Thank you that you are in control, that you are Lord of all. Um, we know that you are building your kingdom. You said that you will build your church. You said that you will achieve what you will achieve for your glory's sake. Help us to revel in your sovereignty. Help us to trust you in your sovereignty. Help us to Trust that you know what's best for us, even if it doesn't seem, even if it doesn't seem helpful for us at the time. Help us to have, a, have your perspective. We are so small, we don't know anything. We put our trust in you because you're the only one worthy of putting trust in. Help us to proclaim of your kingdom and of Christ's love to all our family, friends, members, people that don't know Jesus. Help us to be bold with that and help us to put our confidence in you because anything that we do for you is not in vain. We love you. We thank you for your spirit who lives in us. Pray that you can just pour your spirit on us to be bold for you and trust that you have it all because that is the reality of it. We thank you for who you are always. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.